Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Terry Wolf. His last name is spelled W-O-L-F-E, so it has an E on the end. This will be our third discussion. Uh, he just published a book. The title of it is The Paradox of Fundamentalism, God's Fault, just published within the last month. But we've also talked about his other two books. Uh, one is Maybe Everyone is Wrong, Revelations, Conspiracy, and the Kingdom of Heaven. That was published 2020, and then Fire in the Rabbit Hole, published 2022, and his website is wolfpox.com, so W-O-L-F-P-O-X, so I'll put that in the show notes, but I read through this book, I read pretty much read about half of it in detail and scanned the last half, really interesting, and goes into a lot of stuff, but one of the interesting things about Terry is he's, he's had like 200,000 followers on TikTok, and he mentions in the book that he's talked to a lot of people. So I think it may have informed his, this book, his his Christian outlook, his fun, maybe fundamentalist outlook. He can explain that in greater detail. But again, the title of the book is The Paradox of Fundamentalism, and it's Terry Wolf. So Terry, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me back. Um, I'm excited about this book because it's the beginning of a series of books that I'm writing. Uh, this is book one in the God's Fault series, and just to give people the, the broadest possible overview of the idea of the God's Fault series is to basically say, bring on all of the criticism you have for the Bible and God. Give me your worst you know, arguments, your best arguments. Let's see where God stands after everything is said and done. Uh, the, the, the atheists, the anti-theists, which is like, you know, we know there's that's an actual thing. It's not just atheists. It's people who argue that any concept of this God, especially the biblical God, is an act of evil in the world that needs to be stopped. Is you see all of it on TikTok? Like you said, I had I had about two hundred twenty-five thousand followers on TikTok, and I was very actively conversing with them in the comments, uh, reacting to the whole Christian community there, and I was getting major traction with you know certain other people who were influential. So I was really part of that conversation. And if you're not part of that, you might, if you're just sort of comfortably going to church and you're doing your own thing, it's very easy to think nothing has changed and Christianity is sort of just what it always has been. But in reality, uh, the internet and especially TikTok and social media has changed everything because it's allowed the the loudest minorities to gain a foothold that they would not normally have in churches because of course they would be sort of walled off and and pushed to the margins and stuff like that because the church is about preserving the faith and preserving this sense of safety and comfort and keep coming back and don't really uh you know just kind of you're trying to keep the wolves out i mean that's basically what you're trying to do but the internet's the opposite it's like inviting all of the people into the center of the discussion and they become the polarizing element that that changes the way people are talking and rather than just condemning tiktok or trying to dodge that i was like okay let me get into the ring let me see what these people have to say and as a fundamentalist as somebody who just sort of took the bible at face value and you know, I did look into it. I've I've looked into the language. I've looked into different things because I love it. But I didn't want to hear certain arguments. And I just wanted to poo-poo it and dismiss the critics and say, 
there's there's actually no contradictions there's always an explanation somewhere i just that's what my faith is my faith is the belief that there is no problem and rather than accepting that uh through this process i've changed it because i saw the paradox which is why it's called the paradox of fundamentalism i've changed that now to say faith is what you do in response to these critics when you are looking for a better answer you don't give up on your faith just because there is something that's challenging and that makes you say well okay i can't just i can't just continue the tradition the way i was taught it um the tradition got us to this point the teachings got us to this point but now we're in the internet generation we're in the extremely high information age and where advanced scholars are coming out and having face-to-face conversations with average believers. That's never happened before. They were always locked away in universities or, you know, some sort of, even the, the Catholic scholars or whatever, they would be in their own area having their own discussions, and then they would maybe release some papers, and Pete would trickle down here and there. But now it's happening at a ground level, and the defenses that people are creating for the Bible and for God and just even for the ethics of of God's judgments in the biblical stories, uh, like which is essentially theology, that's it's taking on a whole new dimension now. It's getting very real, and and I was concerned about it. So I said instead of just writing something that defends the Bible sort of generically or just attacks people who you know find problems with the Bible or with the way that God has done things, um, I'm going to question where we should be standing, what the proper stance is in relation to God. Does God even want us to be fundamentalists in the way that we have been? Should we be wrestling with these concepts and saying, for example, I have examples in the book of small contradictions, you know, not major theological things that will turn over the entire meaning of the Bible. But even if you just look at a small contradiction in a story, I have a story in Samuel about the daughters of Saul, King Saul. And the Bible at one point says his daughter had no children. And then at a different point in the same book, it says she had, I think, five children. And that's a contradiction. But you know, and it says she had no children until the day of her death. So it's not like it's pretty clear that that's a contradiction. And translations differ on whether to say it one way or another way. And if you go to a fundamentalist with something like that, even if they agree that it's not important, they'll have to do something with it because they want it to be completely perfect. And so what do we do? And ultimately, you know, like I say on the back of the book, you know, if God is the Almighty, if He is ultimately responsible for the way that the world has gone, doesn't that mean that He allowed there to be a contradiction? Like, you almost have to start thinking on that level that there's things aren't perfect. God isn't doing things the way we want Him to do it. It's a it's a more difficult and complex scene, and so. I think it's dangerous to just have the simple fundamentalist assumptions and sort of try to stay in that safe zone 
And instead, we need to be more courageous, listen to the critics. Uh, yes, look for answers. I have theories on how some of these critics, criticisms from scholars, for example, uh, don't add up and they contradict themselves and they also have problems. And as the series continues, uh, the next book in the series is going to be dealing with scholars and scholarship and the paradox of scholarship. Um, and so it's not... That'll be a long book. That'll be a thousand <laughs> pages. Because, I mean, it's almost like opinion. And I think that's a theme in this book is like, what are people's interpretation? How are they interpreting? What words are used? Why are people using these words? It's all so important in this kind of view. If it's God's inspired word or God inspired the word or it's the word of God, why does it have so many interpretations and so many things? And actually, it's a theme that you even mentioned in this book with Paul. Like you, there's so many, you, I can't remember which uh, scripture it was, but it was like, you guys believe this one way and I'm telling you this way. And there's these other teachers and I'm trying to tell you the truth. So it's been a problem, at least in the New Testament from day one, right? Yeah. And that's ultimately the takeaway of this book. And it's, you're going to see it. I'm going to build the argument as as well as I can over these books to show that God could have done things differently if he really wanted us to have a black and white, simple answer for everything and just hand it to us on a silver platter. And then there you go. Even a child could understand it. There's nothing to it. You know, people like to think fundamentalists, I should say, like to think that God is, has done everything he can to give us the answers and that's just not true. There's God, of course, if you understand, you believe in God, you believe he's able to do all of these miracles. And of course, you could be able to preserve his word through these scriptures and then the translations and everything else. He could have done things so much differently, but he didn't. And so if you think he's good and you think that he's, you know, trying to accomplish his mission his his goal with the word of god with his own word you have to start thinking okay even the disciples were having these arguments um they didn't know that they were going to need to pass on this information in a way that would last 2000 years they were just having conversations as if jesus would come back any to, any day now and, you know, Paul was talking about how people shouldn't even have kids or get married just because, you know, the time was so short, you know, that we just should be getting ready for Christ's return and stuff like that. They had the Holy Spirit. They were doing miracles. They were healing people and stuff. And yet God didn't reveal these things to them. So even the people who are teaching us in the Bible have these huge blind spots. I deal with that a lot in my my first book on theology maybe everyone is wrong this idea that prophecy was this is this very controversial mystery that the the disciples didn't even know about and now 2000 years later we can look back on and see it in a whole different way that they wouldn't have even understood themselves in fact it says not even jesus knew the time or the time the date when these things would happen it says only the father in heaven knows when these things are going to happen. And so if you've been following my work, if you have enjoyed, maybe everyone is wrong and fire in the rabbit hole. This book will continue to challenge a lot of the popular traditions. 
uh, the series, Will. And I wanted to start with fundamentalists because it's me, because it's, you know, I want to acknowledge first that I don't have all the answers. Fundamentalists don't have all the answers. It's been a simplified, arrogant sort of way of handling the Bible. And I believe that's not very godly. I say in the book that the uh, there's a quote from Jesus in Revelation when he's talking about the warnings to the churches, and he says that the people believe they're rich and that they have no need of anything, and they're sort of very confident. And I think it's the Church of Philadelphia or something like that. And he says, you know, I'm warning you, uh, you are naked and you are blind and you you know, you've missed the whole point. And it, it's a warning against this arrogance. So, although that's also sort of the the difficult thing about pitching this book to a Christian is, are you ready for that kind of shift where most teachers, most preachers would want to just build you up and make you more and more certain and confident in everything that you've been taught? I want to go the other way and say, how far can we go in examining ourselves, re-examining our relationship with God? And like I said in, in the intro to the book, if your solution to these controversies and problems is to deny that they exist and then create a different story for yourself or a different story of what God did or wanted to do, at what point are you just creating a false God? you're essentially saying, well, let's pretend that God is actually like this. He didn't, you know, I have examples in the book here because I wanted to pick some things to highlight from people. Again, from my experience on TikTok, I ran into a lot of different cults and sort of weird little movements and stuff. You have people saying that the Word of God, the Bible, as written in the Hebrew— not the English translation, but the Hebrew, is actually the source of the whole universe. It's upholding creation. You can find verses to, to sort of very delicately try to create a support for that argument. So that if there was ever a problem with the Hebrew text, the universe itself would unravel and destroy itself because literally in a very real metaphysical way, the universe hinges on the Hebrew text being perfect and flawless in every single way. But it's not. There's all kinds of different Hebrew. And the uh, like you write in the book, when the Jews were taken away to what, Assyria or whatever, the Babylons, that's what they, they didn't, they learned uh, Assyrian, which is what Christ spoke in, right? They spoke in, uh, what was the language? Aramaic, Aramaic. right? Yeah, Aramaic. Yeah, and even that I question because there's a whole chapter on the language that Jesus spoke. And there you have a very popular tradition that Jesus spoke Aramaic. And the reason why people believe that is because we have little snippets where in the Greek New Testament, it was written in Greek, so all of his quotations are Greek, but... A couple of times, it goes out of its way to show that he was actually, he had these Aramaic phrases. And so, it's weird if you think about it. He's speaking 
Aramaic the whole time, this is what we're told. And then sometimes, even though there would be a pretty straightforward Greek equivalent, you could just translate it into Greek like they were doing with everything else, they chose to preserve the Aramaic saying as he actually quoted it. And, and then because we have these little snippets, people believe and scholars agree that he spoke Aramaic the entire time and they just didn't write it down in Aramaic. Um, and I make an argument in there that it doesn't really make sense as much as him speaking Greek for the most part. And then they noted the times when he was not speaking Greek, he was speaking Aramaic. I don't even, uh, of course, that would be a whole debate. I've heard people argue, scholars who are very trained on the subject, more intelligent, more trained than I am. I've heard them argue that uh, you could make a very solid case that Greek was the common tongue a lot of Jews were speaking, and Jesus would have been, uh, he would have had an accent, and certainly he was familiar with Aramaic, and he could have spoken Aramaic anytime he wanted to, but they were basically multilingual. And the problem, like, if, if Jesus was speaking Aramaic the whole time, that means we really don't have good direct quotations from him. We have a, a layer of translation right there already. And so if you want to believe everything Jesus said, you see people doing this where they say, and this is very popular on TikTok, actually, it was very disturbing to me, is that you have people come by and say, okay, so here's a verse from the Bible. Jesus said this. Now, what did he mean to say? Because all we have is this flawed Greek translation. Well, if you convert it to Aramaic, then he would have been saying this. And then that has a different implication. And then they build a whole doctrine around the assumption that we didn't, the, the Greek isn't actually conveying the real thought. You need to get the Aramaic or even the Hebrew. People will try to reconvert because Aramaic and Hebrew are related. They're, they're not very different languages, so there's a lot of equivalence. Um, so they'll be like, well, the Hebrew has the real meaning. Aramaic is what he spoke, and then Greek is what we got. So let's bridge those gaps and then reconstruct what he would have originally meant in Hebrew, and then that's how they get their doctrine. And it's very disturbing if you're a fundamentalist who just wants to say Jesus said this and of course we're reading in English too so there's another gap and it's like how far removed are we from these teachings on certain and certain times these key words really make a difference and I wanted to also emphasize that in the book I have a list of words that we use today that really are so divorced from the Greek language not to mention the Aramaic and the Hebrew um, that we just keep using them sort of mindlessly, and they've taken on a life of their own. But uh, I think re-examining language, the language is kind of at the heart of the whole book because of this. Fundamentalists are people of the book. They they believe they are the, the Word of God is the center of their whole life. And then the question is, can you really face up to the challenges of the text? Do you care about the fact that the way that manuscripts work, the way that uh, languages were translated, the fact that we need 
scholars in order to decipher what was even being said across all these different fragments of manuscripts and stuff. And uh, the average uneducated person is not really qualified to dig into those controversies. And yet, you know, rather even today when we have easy access to all of this scholarship and we could be looking this stuff up, you don't see a big movement of Christians trying to educate themselves on the text and the manuscripts and stuff like that. Instead, you have this sort of free-for-all that I saw on TikTok of cherry-picking verses and places where they want to take a stand and say, this is what I believe. And if you think about it, in Aramaic, it would have meant this. And then they're playing games with it instead of taking the stepping back and looking at the whole picture and saying, this is a, a huge mess and God has handed this to us. God could have done it differently. But now I feel like we're sort of tearing off the veneer of all of the, the conversations that have been going on quietly, basically for 2000 years around these doctrines and these teachings. And, and, and it's becoming very ugly. The, the friendliness is gone. Um, it's a very hostile environment where a lot of Christians are, becoming what they call deconstructionists where they they start to break down and question every single aspect of the bible they're allowing scholars to just basically come in and tear apart everything that they ever thought they knew and the pastors and the preachers are just sort of sitting there being like pay no mind to that out there uh, just you know shut turn off your phone and stop using the internet and just come to church like it doesn't exist well even if you're not doing it, your kids will be doing it they will be exposed to these ideas and i want to sort of lean into that and say okay let's get in the ring let's see where we're at and um and then let's turn the mirror on everyone and see see where we end up terry you say you're a fundamentalist what are the five kind of basic outlooks that a fundamentalist has don't you you kind of enumerate those in the book right yeah so the the fundamentals that a fundamentalist is believes in is that the bible first and foremost the bible is the inspired and infallible word of god Uh, so not only did god motivate the people to write it or inspire them to write it they are perfect they are flawless Uh, they believe therefore that jesus was born from a virgin Uh, He had a miraculous birth that Jesus is not just an ordinary man who received the Holy Spirit or something like that. He was actually created by that miracle that we see in the Gospels because they take it literally. Uh, They believe that Christ's death is an atonement for all potential, potential atonement for all sin, even if it doesn't actually end up you know, saving everyone because a lot of people end up still going to hell. It has the power to atone for all sin. They believe the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Um, So he actually did come back to life. He ascended to heaven. These are, you know, and then also you could add the, uh, uh, the reality of just all of his miracles, walking on water, raising the dead, all these miracles that we see. And then you could also add the idea that he's coming back again for the millennial kingdom or for whatever that Jesus is not finished yet. He's coming back and someday we'll see him again. Those are the five or six 
fundamental beliefs of a fundamentalist, they really all stem from the first one, which is the idea that the text is a literal account of real events, that these miracles are real, and therefore it should be. If these things are true logically, then we need to you know, treat it as such and, and truly worship and be in awe of Jesus and of these miracles and believe that it's possible and orient our whole lives towards the text and what it reveals to us and that it's just sort of this window into the divine wisdom that we all need. Right. So those are the fundamental issues. But then your book shows that even in the Bible, and this doesn't necessarily negate its validity, there's a lot of word uses, usages and interpretations. And even like if the even if the, the statements of Paul or Christ are correct, there's a lot of things that indicate that interpretation means means a lot, like whether people can understand these things or not. Even Christ said that, like, I'm going to speak in parables so people, you know, can't understand it. So there really is an inter it's a interpretation or, you know, maybe a, an epistemological kind of view towards the Bible about it. Can you understand all of it based upon all of these things that have, have happened over 2000 years? Right. So. It really is a paradox. Like it's infallible, but there's a lot of kind of questionable insight. And it's interesting that you're on TikTok too, because you've seen just all, I'm sure it's just all the howling storm of like all the opposing views that may not have existed maybe until recently with the internet, where you can literally look into Catholicism, fundamentalism, yeah. orthodoxy, Mennonites, the whole bit, you know. One of the because the fundamentalism I grew up with was, you know, Mennonite. I'm, I was raised Mennonite. I'm, I'm very happy with the fact that I was raised Mennonite. Mennonites always believed that each individual needs to read the Bible for themselves. Um, it kind of assumes that no one is going to be able to understand it all, but God will help you to understand whatever you need to understand. And it's just sort of trust in God's process and not pretend that we're experts and scholars on anything, but just we're simple people and we want to live simple lives. And and I even make that argument in the book that it's, of course, I I believe that you don't have to even read the Bible in order to be saved. Um, you can hear it, you can hear the message, and you can believe it. And then you could go off for the rest of your life and just remember that and believe it. And, and I believe that that's okay. Um we don't need to be experts on the text, but since we're now here in the age where the Bible is being ripped apart and deconstructed and all these things, um, one of the th examples, it's always these other Christians, which of course um, I consider them to be false teachers. They would consider me to be a false teacher <laughs> of, um, for example, like the sacred name theology that is kind of going viral it's very popular where, where we shouldn't be calling jesus jesus we should be calling him yashua or something like that because they believe that you, of course you can find all these verses where it says that the name of jesus is very important but his name wasn't jesus it was scholars agree that his original name would have been yeshua and so what is the sacred name? You know, are we 
essentially worshiping a false Jesus, a false God. If we don't use the right name, it's called sacred name theology. I don't get into yeah, you that. You mentioned much a lot of other things, NAR, the new apostolic reformation with all these titles, flowery titles, biblical codes. So there's a lot of things that we people can think that are really the truth and the true way to interpret the Bible. Yeah. Make you a heretic. Yeah, the, the Nars, yeah, the Nars, there's something else. Yeah, the Nar ones. Right. And so there are these big movements that come out of sort of a, a weird hunger for doubling down on the Bible's validity, but in a way that just runs with a doctrine, runs with some assumptions, and it's almost like a mindless frenzy to defend the Bible. And then in the process, it becomes a cult. And it's something that our forefathers would have been, you know, shocked at. Uh, you know, it's not consistent at all with with traditional theology, not just Catholic traditional theology, but any theology. They're, they're just sort of taking a, this weird assumption that's false in the case of sacred name theology and stuff. And... Uh, the Bible codes, for instance, the idea that you can use computers to decipher the the hidden meanings and hidden words within the Bible, that if you read it the right way, it's like God implanted these special messages in there, and, and that proves that the Bible is sacred and it's all perfect. And, okay, well, certainly you can find these hidden patterns in there using computers if you want, but once you look a little bit deeper... You can also find messages that you certainly wouldn't think God would want to put in the Bible using that same technique. It says God is not real in some if you use this, and you know you put the code together, and, and then it says God is dead in other places, and it, in other places it you know says some nonsense. That's like, where do we stop? Where do we draw the line? Um, and so I do analyze that, and I will continue in the next books to analyze sort of these far out doctrines. And then I'm always go I always have this reflex now to step back and say, all right, so that's humans. Humans are doing these things. Humans are being crazy. Uh, humans do all sorts of things wrong. But why is God allowing this to be his church? Why why did he arrange things in such a way that this is the best we can do, or this is where we've ended up? If you sort of have this idea that God is ultimately presiding over this whole mess, it's like, is this what he wanted? Does he like this on some level? I mean, ultimately, the, the idea of God's fault, the reason why it's called that is because who else can we hold accountable for a trend that spans 2000 years or more of all these people doing these things. If he's his spirit, the Holy spirit was infused in all these believers and yet they're clashing. They're coming against each other. They're not agreeing They're You'd think that the Holy spirit could unify us all. And so there's a, the more you look at it right now, this book, there's only one. So it seems like it's just me attacking fundamentalism, you're going to see very quickly as I put out more books that, and I, I've written 600 some pages already. This is just a 180 page first book. Um, I've already have like two other books that are mostly complete um, where you're going to see the pattern emerging where I'm, I'm really telling the story of God 
creating controversies, making sure that nobody is in a comfortable position. And that's the bigger aspect I'm going to be driving at. And this one, um, the, the final chapter is just asking what God could have done differently if he wanted to do it differently. So right. if you're a fundamentalist... I, you know what, what comes to mind is like Christ saying, you know, I've not, not come to bring peace, but a sword. I will set parents against sons and all that. And yeah. I think that that's really in a something that people kind of seeks validity in the kind of substructure of the Bible is that it's not that clear and it's written over times and it's written during certain eras. And so I think that uh, all the disputations are, you know, as long as they're not violent, I think that they're important. And the truth is that what Christ said is true and the family still dispute about certain things. And you can find fault in the Bible to discount the whole thing. It's totally irrational, but people do it all the time. Ecclesiastes was a pseudo epigrapher or whatever the word is. Therefore, the whole Bible's fake because they put in a book that isn't shouldn't be there. Therefore, I could discount this whole thing. And some people can just read one book of the Gospels and it, you know it validates everything in there. So it really comes down to the individual. So is it really God's fault? Is it the individual's fault? I also comes like the scripture comes to mind is like uh, I brought John who drank no wine, and then Jesus is a wine bibber. So I came to you with a message from both, but it wasn't good enough for you. So it's like, what are you going to take out of this? And if you really want to find fault, is the fault God or is a fault in yourself? Who is the mode in your eye or, you know, give me a break. That's what, what I think of when like I see, and it is a kind of paradox. The paradox is real. It's not a perfect book. It can't be seen as perfect if there's that many different interpretations, that many different writers, that many different choices. In interpreting interpreting words just themselves, just the language, right? Right, and and this is not the book where I'm going to be creating a theory or speculating on why God actually did do it this way. I'm phrasing this more like a lament. People uh, don't really step back and look at the pattern of the prophets, the saints, the Moses, and all stuff, but they were pretty sorrowful people, and they totally believed in God. They literally witnessed miracles and had direct uh, inspiration to say the words of God and everything. And yet they were not happy-go-lucky people with no questions and no doubts and no problems. They had a more direct pipeline access to God than any of us. And yet they were confused themselves. They were troubled by the things that God was doing. And Almost always, it was something shocking that God did that seemed to contradict what he was supposed to do. It contradicted their assumptions about God and stuff. And yet today, we want to have a very comfortable relationship with God where nothing is, uh, we, we don't, we never have to question the things of the Bible or the stories that, that are come that are passed down through these traditions and the interpretations that we get. And I think maybe a proper relationship with God is more of a struggle than people think. Um, maybe we're not supposed to be, you know, lazy and sort of just take everything at face value. I think that's how it starts. Sometimes we could start with a childlike faith of, you know, but once you grow out of that, I, I argue in the book that the, the Bible itself says that 
you're not supposed to give meat to a newborn, you know, it, you're supposed to give them milk. And the church system has basically been designed to keep us on milk forever, to never give us the meat because there's always new Christians in the congregation. There's, there's always this turnover, essentially, of new Christians coming in. So when are you going to switch from milk to meat? You kind of, you can't afford to because you might destroy the faith of the weakest Christians who aren't ready to hear anything controversial. And so you've trained these generations to just hear nice things, never hear anything that's, you know, challenging. I've, never, I've been in a, like a Protestant church for decades, and I've never heard a sermon that gets into deeper theological things. It's usually just a recitation of somebody's translation of the Bible. And, yeah, you were uh, talking about helpful. like opinions and, and the way that, you know, it, when you have scholars or theologians or Bible teachers, whatever, anybody who's really educated on these subjects, and that's what I did. I looked into what they were saying, um, and what I walked away with was these guys really are in the same position as us. Even though they have all this extra knowledge, they have all this extra insight into the text and the languages and all this these things, the cultures back then, and what it would have meant if Jesus said this at that time— they still just have an opinion at the end. It's not fact. It's it's, and then they disagree with each other. And the other, I'm going to really get into that in the next book. But you know, even the question of the the scriptures being inspired, I have a whole chapter on the inspiration of the Bible. And if you really look at the verses that describe the Bible or scriptures as being inspired, it doesn't say what people think it says. It doesn't say that every passage of the Bible or the the scriptures, as they would have called them, because, of course, the Bible is the collection of all the books together later on. Uh, but they had the Old Testament scriptures, and they called them the scriptures. You know, it doesn't say anything about the accounts being accurate, the genealogical lists being accurate, the laws or codes or commandments being accurate, the speech that is recorded from the characters or the people in these stories being accurate. What it says in, for example, um, it says no prophecy of scripture is of private interpretation. No prophecy emerged from the will of man, but God spoke, men spoke from God and were moved by the Holy spirit. And I've heard people over and over and on TikTok, for example, fundamentalists go and they quote second Peter uh, 1 verse 20 to 21, and they say, see, the scriptures are not from private interpretation, and none of it emerged from the will of man. It was all spoken from God. It was all from moving the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. It didn't say that. It just said the prophecies are inspired. The prophecies were spoken from God. And that little difference right there means it doesn't cover the rest of all of the the things that are in the Bible besides prophecy. Those things, potentially, I'm not saying that it is. I believe, you know, I'm, I'm taking the devil, taking a sort of a devil's advocate position here to, to make the point that when you get really comfortable with this, people can come in and cut it out at the knees and say, no, you haven't actually read your own Bible correctly or carefully enough. Uh, it has 
it has the potential to be saying, no, the, the rest of it wasn't inspired except for the, the prophecies. Um, and then the Bible also teaches us that deception is going to continue to get worse and worse over time. It's like, well, if you believe that, then you should believe that by now, 2,000 years later, we are surrounded by deception. And, and so, again, it makes it challenging. Um, I want to start with the fundamentalists, and then I'll turn my, you know, my, my, my attention towards sort of the enemies of the Bible or these other figures who have their own problems and, and show that they're not in such a great position either that they like to pretend like they're so right. They have all the answers. They don't have the answers either. Um, so I hope people check out this one, but keep in mind, you know, I'm not just anti-fundamentalist. I'm, uh, I'm going to be taking swings at a lot of different groups here, including Gnostics and occultists and stuff like that, which is, it's going to be, that's going to be a very fun one. Good. I'm looking forward to that one. It makes me think of the biblical quote you used, which is, Jacob wrestling the angel and Jacob becomes Israel, but he wrestles and wins. So the wrestling and not letting go of God until he gives him or the angel gives him a blessing uh, is interesting because you would think wrestling with God would be a negative thing. Instead, <laughs> yeah. that's positive. He didn't let God didn't get the angel go until he got his blessing. Uh, there's a quick question here, Terry. It's from block party benches. He asks, what's your view of Christ being the head of one body? Is there only one true church? Yes, there is a body of Christ that is universal, that is transcends any language or race or cultural group. It is a spiritual body. It's really the kingdom of God is what we're talking about. Um, it is growing. It has been growing across cultures. Um, and I go right into the word church in the book and the, the misuse of the term church. Um, we should not be even using the term church uh, the the word in english has been so mangled and its origin is so cloudy and and almost useless when you think of the word the real word that was used in the new testament was the ecclesia or the assembly it's just anybody who assembles in the name of jesus or the name of god jesus said where two or more are gathered in my name there am i i will be wherever a tiny group of people gathers. Well, in that case, yes, of course, you can have a home church, you can have a huge congregation, mass pilgrimages, all these things, and that can all be the church. Um, the divisions people make, the denominations that people have made are on some level spiritually unified if they have the Holy Spirit and they are Christians. The divisions between them should be you know, be seen as artificial. And I really wish that there was not a church system, but a more, what you see in the New Testament is people gathering based on geography, and then they weren't supposed to divide for any other reason than the fact that, you know, it was inconvenient to travel a long way to gather with somebody else. And uh, there was never supposed to be five churches in one city or anything like that. But if you can sort of break away from that thought of, and of course, you know, realistically, I know that each denomination has these strong ideological and doctrinal differences, and those do matter. But you kind of, I, my belief that 
I've taught over and over again is that every real Christian moves out of whatever they were raised in towards the real kingdom of the more universal essence of Christianity. You, everyone gets raised in a denomination and then they end up at the kingdom as a more of a, a real unity where I don't consider myself to be denominational, although I definitely was raised Mennonite and I appreciate what it gave me. But, you know, I think you grow out of that into a more uh, brotherhood, a more sincere family or kingdom of God. Yeah, I agree with that too. I, I'm not denominational as much. I call myself a Bible believer. That's fine with me. Um, Terry, thanks for, for your time. Congrats on the book. Where's the best place for people to get God's fault? Uh, it's only available on Amazon right now. Um, I might be publishing it in other places uh, in the near future, but this is just step one and I'm, I'm busy. So uh, right now, Amazon is the place to get it. Look up the paradox of fundamentalism. Or if you want links to all of my stuff, uh, wolfpox.com has front and center, you know, a, a link to it. It's uh, being promoted on there right now. And uh, just so that everyone knows, uh, on my podcast, which is the Not Done Yet podcast, you can also find a link to that on my website, wolfbox.com, I will be reading the whole book for free, uh, chapter by chapter. So if you don't want to buy it or you want to hear part of it first or whatever, that's something I've done with Maybe Everyone is Wrong. It's something I did with Fire in the Rabbit Hole. I give away the material. I don't want to be accused of being greedy. If you want to just learn what I have to say, you don't have to buy the book. Um, so it will be available on the podcast as well. It'll just take some time for me to put out those episodes and create essentially an audiobook on the podcast. So uh, I hope people support it and give me a chance and, and let me make this argument because um, it's going to get more interesting as I put out more in the series. But this is what we're starting with. And, uh, and I wanted to do some self-reflection first and open myself up and, and, you know, see where I stand in this whole controversy first and hope people join me in this journey that I, I'm kind of going down here. And it's uh, Wolfpox, is W-O-L-F-P-O-X, I will put, dot com. I'll put a link in the show notes. And then it's the Not Done Yet podcast as well. Are you still on TikTok? Are you still, or did yes. you? I got you... my initial account with the 220,000 followers got banned uh, out of nowhere, deleted. Um, I didn't break any rules, but they, they deleted it and and banned me. I made a new account. I think I'm up to 120 some thousand. And uh, I am just recently making more videos and I will be explaining some of this material in new TikTok videos. So if you want to join me there, the it's Mr. Wolfpox now on MR Wolfpox on TikTok. And I've been doing some videos recently. People always ask great questions. When I'm not writing, I can afford to do some more uh, videos and actually answer the community and that's where i get a lot of the inspiration from because i realize what a hunger there is out there for answers on these things and that's a that's a wonderful thing to be able to go back to and tap into interesting i'm Again, sure you authors... have it on your podcast here i'm mean, oh, sure I you're did, tapped in with all the community that's oh people send that... me emails all the time it's hard it's hard for me to actually answer a lot of them but uh, i try to but it's terry wolf last name spelled w-o-l-f-e this is our third discussion and the title of the book is god's fault book one the paradox of fundamentalism. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Take care. Stay there.